I find that the ability to problem solve, the ability to think on your own two feet, when things can start to feel like they're going way too fast out on court, there seems to be a swirl and you're, you're, you, know, you feel like you're going down the drain mentally or physically, and then you have someone that can come on court and prop you up and kind of help figure out some new tactics for you and, or calm you down mentally. I don't think that as a player, I want to see that because I think you should be able to problem solve just like a, that's a weapon, just like a big forehand or a big service. Hey everyone, John Wertheim here. It is this week's Sports Illustrated slash Tennis Channel Tennis Podcast. We are at the Indian Wells Tennis Garden in the desert. We're doing this on a Wednesday, so it's going to be a little tricky to talk results. Federer and Nadal have not played each other for the 36th time yet. So we'll talk general with a terrific guest. Excited to have her on. The lovely, the talented Tracy Ann Austin Holt. Tracy Austin, of course, is a Hall of Famer. She is a Tennis Channel commentator. She's also just an overall lovely human being, which will be borne out in this conversation. We talk a little about women's tennis. We talk about mental toughness. We talk about Tracy transitioning from a player to a commentator to a mom. Very nice conversation with a very nice woman. I think you'll enjoy it. She's sitting right next to me, so why don't we get started? It's Tracy Austin. Thank you for doing this. Absolutely. For you, John, anything. Oh, Tracy. This is just audio, so um, we're just going to have a conversation. Is this your first podcast? My first podcast. Oh, come on. They're fun. Um, So we're doing this on Wednesday in Indian Wells. So let's not talk about results that might get um, obsolete. Let's go general. State of women's tennis. You're you're walking around. You're very popular here. You're you're the bell of the ball at Indian Wells. You have a lot of commitments, and someone pulls you aside and say, Tracy, what is going on in the women's game right now? What do you tell them? I would say that except for Serena, it's very wide open. And therefore, I see that there are a lot of opportunities. You see that there are a variety of people that are winning, that are going deep in tournaments. I think there's a lot of depth in women's tennis. And for me, it's really interesting that in the last few years, there have been quite a few people that have great success, and they really haven't been able to handle the pressure and handle the expectations. And... You were so used to seeing champions all of a sudden flourish and get that confidence when they have those big wins, and we haven't seen that as much lately. As someone who is known for her steely mental toughness, no, I mean this was always a virtue of of, of your game that you were just you, you were focused. You were, mental toughness was one of your great assets. What is it like watching this? Well, I think. I've tried to figure it out. It's a real head-scratcher for me. I think, one, there might be more depth now, and so therefore players that are ranked 20, that are ranked 30, have big weapons. I also wonder if some of the players didn't maximize every step along the way, and I think it's really important to play juniors in the 12s, the 14s, master every step. That's interesting. And... Because therefore you get used to being the number one seed. You get used to having all the pressure of having to win the title. You're on the top line of that draw. You're on the top line of that draw, and you finish with the trophy in your hands on Sunday. And I think I've noticed that a lot of them say, okay, I've won this title. Oh, my gosh, now there's so many more eyes on me. Instead of saying, I've won this title, now I can be at the top of the game. And they're not drawing from that confidence that I think it should bring. 
I'm going to play devil's advocate. Tell me, agree or disagree, that Muguruza wins the French Open. I don't think she hasn't been to a final since then. Angie Kerber wins two majors and silver medal at the Olympics. Wimbledon finalist, terrific 2016, very slow start to the year. She was eliminated here last night. Um, you have other players that go away and come back. You know, Wozniacki, at this time last year, was really struggling. Now she's playing top five tennis. I, I kind of like it. I kind of don't mind that you have these fluctuations. Argue yeah, with me. It certainly makes it interesting, and I think Angelique Kerber had a phenomenal 2016, and I'm going to say that I, she was very sturdy because for someone who was 28 years old, went into Australia – Ranked in the top ten, but always on the outside, just player, on the fringe right. of the right. top ten. You, you win the first slam, and you win the last slam? I That's... wouldn't expect her to be able to handle it as well as she did. She had a little bit of a hiccup in the spring, but then she got right back on the horse and got to the finals of Wimbledon and got to the finals of the Olympics. And she had a lot of pressure on her at the U.S. Open to win that title. And she came out, and she was supposed to beat Pliskova, in the finals, she was supposed to beat Wozniacki in the semifinals, and I was impressed with the way that she handled that. So, yes, she's had a bit, a bit of a lull, losing a couple of times to Kazakina, a couple of times to Svitolina at the start of 2017. But, again, I think that she's going to get right back on the horse. I think what's happened to her is she's lost a little confidence on her serve. Right. And she doesn't have that one huge weapon to crack open a point, exactly. say Serena, if she's coming back and she doesn't have as many matches under her belt, she's, her serve is something that she can always rely on. She's probably always going to get through her service games pretty handily, and that takes some pressure off of her return game. Kerber doesn't have that luxury. She des- relies on defense more. So that serve needs to be, again, powerful like it was last year, or more powerful, I should say, and less predictable. Are these pressures that players are facing is this you get to the tournament you're the top line on the draw it's defending points it's playing opponents that want to beat you or is this a more general it's interviews and endorsements and all the off-court pressures I mean I you look at someone Jeannie Bouchard is a name that comes to mind as someone who just her life is so very different after becoming a top 10 top five player than it was before when we talk about players adjusting to these pressures is it is it is it tennis pressures or are these external you know, responsibilities and demands on their time pressures? I think without a doubt, it's both. And it's a question of the landscape of your life changes. All of a sudden, Angie Kerber talked about it after winning Australia. There were many more media requests. All of a sudden, you're having more endorsements. You, you had this, right? I had I mean, that. And the key we need you is, in Japan. Well, yeah, yeah, and the key is, I think, is... First of all, adjusting, but the team around you and recognizing what you can handle. I mean, guys like Roger seem to move through every day flawlessly, and he has a lot of demands on his time. He seems to have a smile on his face. He never seems to get stressed out. It's knowing your player and how much they can handle, how many interviews they can do. There's certain obligations, but I think at the end of the day, it's also your priorities as well. I think someone like a Maria Sharapova, I've always felt that the tennis is still her priority. In other words, she wants to win. And it's not necessarily just about accumulating the dollars. She loves winning on a Sunday. And that's something that you'll see different players. I feel that there are other players that come up and you can see where they're going for the money grab. And they're playing too many tournaments and they're flying from 
certain tournament, you know, in one continent to the other, and you're kind of in a different surface, and you're thinking, okay, that's got to be just for the guarantee. Exactly. But that's that's thinking very short term right. and not long term. So it's it's finding that balance. And there are other players, as you know, who all of a sudden come into their own and break into the top ten, the top twenty, and they're going deeper into tournaments, and they need to really pull back on their schedule and play a few less tournaments because they're now playing more matches. Right. It's a constant balance that you're trying to yeah, find right. as an athlete. No, the, the other one is you hear about in whispers. It's not as obvious as, hey, why is she flying to the other side of the world on a different surface? But the other one's the racket switch, right? Oh, my gosh. That happened. I feel like we don't talk about that enough. The Agnieszka Radvanska. She changed rackets in 2017. Dimitrov. There are a lot of these. You have a breakout year, and someone says, here's whatever it is, half a million dollars. That's one thing that I would not. Don't mess with your tools, I wouldn't huh? mess with. You know, I think clothes is one thing, and you know, certain endorsements. Obviously, you have to believe in the product, but the racket you really have to like because that is a tool. And once it starts to get into your head that this is a little different than my last racket, or when I actually changed rackets, I had the same cosmetics because I wanted to feel like it was this, the same racket that I was playing with. That's how important it was to me. So Radvanska has not won back-to-back, back-to-back matches, I don't think, since Sydney. I was going to say, since the first term of the year, I think. Yeah, and so the racket is something that's very difficult to change. What uh, a colleague of ours who, uh, I don't want to sell her out, we'll call her uh, Mary C. We'll call her M. Carrillo. It's too obvious. We'll call her M. <laughs> Carrillo. Um, we were talking yesterday about about on court coaching, and yes. she, she talked about it on the air, and, and she she despises it. I, I merely hate it. But we were talking about it in, in terms of mental fitness, and does it undercut your confidence when you're losing a match, and you you know you can always call your coach and have him problem solve for you? Uh, do you think that factors into some of these these shaky mental performances we see? That's actually a very, very good point, and I think that the players come onto the tour, and I don't think that they had these mental toughness, and all of a sudden this on-court coaching is undermining it. I think that so many of the players rely on it, and it helps them, and I'm going to go on record right here in saying that as a player, I absolutely despise well, I was it, say, and you, it bothers right, me, right, because okay. I find that the ability to problem-solve, the ability to think on your own two feet when things can start to feel like they're going way too fast out on court. There seems to be a swirl and you're, you're, you know, you feel like you're going down the drain mentally or physically. And then you have someone that can come on court and prop you up and kind of help figure out some new tactics for you and, or calm you down mentally. I don't think that as a player, um, I want to see that because I think you should be able to problem solve just like a, that's a weapon, just like a big forehand or a big service. But as a commentator, I find it quite entertaining yeah, and quite that's interesting. What we were talking so that's where about, I have to right. put my two hats on. The, um, I mean, the other thing, the, just optics. There are many, many more male coaches than female coaches, so it's always here comes the man out of the stands to play hero and talk to this hysterical woman. And the other thing I, I, I was saying was that it's always the player who's losing, right? It's very rare that you see a, a coaching call and they say you're doing fantastic. I love what you're doing. I mean, it's always this sort of player in distress who's as frustrated and looking to make a change and not the positive feedback. Um, well, we saw it from Lauren Davis We yesterday. saw Lauren Davis, she that's true. Everyone should, uh, you know what, we're, we're <laughs> going to include the, uh, we will include the Tennis Channel links to that so you can see it. I, I think, tell me if I'm wrong, the opponent called 
for the coach. And then Lauren Davis said, well, hey, if it's a coaching break, I may as well call mine too. I don't think she's... I wouldn't want anybody to mess with me. If you wouldn't I, want anyone talking to you during a match. I wouldn't want anybody to mess with me at all. Good or but, bad. But if I definitely won the first set 6-1, I wouldn't want any other ideas in my mind. But you are so right about that as far as there are very few women coaches. And I don't know what it is, whether the women don't want to travel as much or they have they have children. But women can think about the tennis ball. I loved it when Andy Murray hired Amelie Moresmo. I mean, I think that was a real breakout statement from him, which we've seen a lot of breakout statements from him. Kudos to Judy right. Murray for raising those two boys so well. But, um, you know, I think it's it's just a tennis ball, and it doesn't matter – whether it's a, a male or a female, it matters whether they understand the tactics. And oftentimes, as we've seen with the coaches, it's all about the mental part and how to get that back together, whether it's Muguruza, Sam Sumit coming out on court. Lindsay Davenport, I think, is going to be a huge asset right. to Madison Keys as she makes her way up into the ranks as she is now into the top ten. I think Madison is going to be a Grand Slam winner very, very soon. Let me ask you this question. What about a coach, Tracy Austin? who knows this sport as well as anyone, who's been there, who knows the mental side, who knows players and their tendencies as well as anyone. Why don't you get out there? Well, I have no desire to travel I gonna, as I a mean, coach. Is that, is that the deal breaker? For right now, um, I think maybe in a few years I have a son that's a, a freshman in high school, and I don't want to leave any more than I already do. I want to be there every single day because I know how quickly that can go. So I have no desire to travel. But if somebody wanted to work in L.A. and I thought that they were – really willing to come in with ears open and wanting to work hard. You know, I, I, my, you, you I, could do this in the right set of circumstances, I would, couldn't yes, you? Yes, I would love it. And I would love to help somebody mentally. I think that's where I could help them the most, and oftentimes right. that's where players need the most help. One, is there, I'll put you on the spot. No, don't put me on the spot. All right, I won't, uh, <laughs> I won't ask if there's one player. No, but it, it seems to me you're almost singularly well I mean, you know, Lindsay's similarly has been in that situation, she's won majors, she knows how to relate to people, but she also knows the landscape. I mean, you, you don't want a coach who hasn't followed the sport as, as closely as, uh, as, as he or she should, right? Absolutely, but I think that having a major champion come in and help, I mean, we've seen that, I'm not comparing myself to others, but like, say, Boris or, or Michael Chang or Stefan Edberg, I think the reason why a player who's been there can help so much, it could be a sentence or two, anything to ease the doubt, anything that can ease the nerves. I mean, we saw no, from there, Stan there's credibility. That you don't have this player saying, boy, what do you know about playing at a Grand Slam? I mean... Absolutely. But think of Stan Wawrinka last year before the U.S. Open final. He act, absolutely was so honest about the fact yeah, that... How he nervous was, he was, right? He was so nervous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. And I think he was almost in tears he was so right. nervous. And then you have Magnus Norman, who has been as high as two in the world, come in French there Open and finalist, he's yeah. really going to take in what Magnus has to say. And Magnus has felt those nerves before and right. felt playing in front of 20,000 people. And so he's going to be able to hopefully have a few words of wisdom to be able to calm Stan down, in which he did. So I think that's why. You're right. It's, it's the respect, but it's also that they've been there, so they know what that actual feeling is like. Three more years in your empty nester? Don't remind me. I Three years is a kids. lot of time. Oh, not long enough. It's gone so fast. How do um, – I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this. How have you figured out how to balance candidly being Tracy Austin and acknowledging what you've achieved and, you know, trading on your, your success as a Grand Slam champion? How do you balance that with 
sort of staying relevant and not anchoring yourself in the early 80s. Does that make sense? I, I didn't yeah, phrase that particularly yeah, well. No. But no, I mean, it's a balance, right? I mean, you don't want to, you, you want to acknowledge what you've done and you want to sort of, you're, you, you did amazing things and you want that to be part of your identity, but you don't want to be stuck Back in, in that. Yeah, era. exactly. How have you yeah, done I that? I think the fact that I've been able to, to do co- television commentary for 25, 30 years and, you know, my career was cut short because of injury, which is obviously so unfortunate. You don't want to ever end a career um, not on your own terms. Unfortunately, I had to, to go through that. But I think because I've stayed in television all the way through, I've seen the different eras come and go. I've seen how the game has changed. Um, you know, and I, it, what's interesting is when I leave tennis, when I go back home, we don't talk about tennis or my career. My children have probably never seen my U.S. Open matches that I've played. My my kids wouldn't even – I'd go to dinner with friends. They wouldn't even know that, I, that I'm a tennis player, and I like it that way. People say, you know, all the time, what's – Whoever, what's Jim Courier really like? What's Tracy Austin really like? And what I always, you want to guess what adjective I use for you? I hope it's nice. <laughs> I say, I say positive. I'm that positive. you don't get, you're very positive, and you don't get sort of hung up in television drama. And you know, I, I talk about Kerber, and you say, look on the bright side, don't bash her too much. Um, is that your sports personality or your organic personality? I think it's both, and I think it comes from my mom. I really do. I, my mom was just a positive lady. She had five kids. She worked six days a week and did everything at home. And I, you know, all the housework, all the cooking, all the laundry, in a very small house. And I never heard her complain once a day in my life. She was woke up every day with a smile. She ended every day tired, extremely tired, but with a smile. And she would always try to find the positives in life. And I think that's that's a good role model. And I think, you know, it's funny, when your parents pass, you, you're kind of left with memories, but you're also left with the role models that they were. Legacy, was, right? Uh, yeah, legacy. And I was very lucky to have two great parents. Let me ask you one more question. It, it stands to reason that uh, kids follow in the family business. Whether whatever, whatever, your dad owns a butcher shop and it stands to reason. You're going to be a butcher like your dad, right? I mean, it's not just sports. Happens all the time. It happens all the time. And at some level, it's, it's, it's nurture, it's what you know. And yet there's a set of complications that goes with that, which is a long-winded way to bring me to the question, how are you as a tennis mom, Tracy Austin? I think I had a lot to learn at the beginning. Um, but I think I'm a very good tennis mom, to tell you the truth, because... I have three boys, and I introduced them to many different sports, including tennis, and I let them choose the, the path that they were going to take. My eldest, Dylan, plays tennis. I was going to say, you, you notice I let you decide whether to name them or not. Or, yeah, or, Dylan right, is can, the oldest, okay. and he played in high school three or four times a week. That's all he wanted to play. But yet my next son, our next son, Brandon, came along, and he was playing with a ball from the time he was two years old, three years old. He could not play enough. He liked tennis from the moment that he started it. He wanted to play tournaments. He wanted to play lots of tournaments. He wanted to be competitive. And so we let him take that path. And then our third son, Sean, is exactly like Dylan. He wants to play two or three times a week. So I think what's important is I knew, and I think a lot of top players know or or former pros know, that this game is a grind. And it's it's all encompassing in your in in your life. It really is, right? And if you don't love it, then there's no point going after it. What I hate to see is parents decide, okay, Sally or Joey are gonna they're gonna be a, a, a tennis pro. Well, it takes a lot of desire day in and day out to really make it. And so I hate to see kids being pushed. It's a pleasure to see our son Brandon 
um, really take it to the next level and the next level because he wants it. And uh, I tell you, that's that's probably one of my biggest pet pet peeves is going to all those junior tournaments and seeing kids out there that weren't really enjoying it. They were doing it because their mom or their dad wanted them to do it. Is that right? Yeah. And that and then the other was the cheating. The cheating is completely off the charts compared to when I played because, again, it's the parents. I hear that. I mean, we're we're actually, it's funny you say that because I have a junior player that actually wrote a piece for Sports Illustrated that we're going to publish next week. I've heard that so much recently that the cheating in junior tennis is absolutely out of control. It's and out I'm thinking, of why, why would that not have been the case when you? I mean, because there wasn't as much on the line. You know, when people were at, when I was started, there, the tour wasn't as big. There weren't the Maria Sharapovas. There weren't. You think the that's what it is? You think that's what I it is? really do because again, there's I think too many parents that decide the kids want to play, and they see they think their kid's going to be so great. Oftentimes, I'm sitting there and watching a match, and Johnny's cheating. You know, nonstop. And all of a sudden, I just want to take that parrot aside and say, Johnny's really not that athletic, and he's not going to go anywhere. So why don't we make him a nice gentleman and, and really right. teach him some well, lessons? Well, you know, even life. a college scholarship is that's another two hundred thousand dollars on the line. Absolutely. But it's funny because that's one thing. I mean, technology you wouldn't you think if anything, technology would be a safeguard, right? If you had video on your phone of a guy hooking you, but I've heard that it's gotten really to problem problem level stages. I blame that, the parents because me. if someone a kid is 13 and 14 and they're still cheating, I blame the parents because obviously they're condoning it by not pulling their child aside. I was going to say, aside. if you, you saw your kid hooking someone at age 13. You need to say, hey, we're not playing tournaments for a while until this, this problem right. seems to go away. That's, we got we got to end on something more Let's positive end on than that. Positive. Come on, but that's just what the junior tennis world is right now. Um, it, it's it's funny though because I rough, feel like that it was rough for us to go through it and rough for me to go as, through as it a parent, second time as a parent, around. Yeah. yeah, when it was so different than the way that I that I came through it. Three happy kids though, even Very at different good kids. different levels Thank of you. tennis. All right, we got to think on something a little more positive than that. Uh, Serena Williams has blank more majors in her in 2017 and beyond. I think Serena could win three more. I really do. And it depends on... This year? Or not cumulatively? This year. Okay. Cumulatively. I was going to say that. Yeah. Would... Yeah, that would, she'd have to win So everything. three more would take her, you know, beyond Margaret Court. It would. And, and I think that's important to her. Yeah. I really... I think that's what's keeping her in the game right now. I think that she probably at this stage doesn't enjoy the grind of practicing day in and day out. Right. But she does is enticed by history, and you know she has twenty three now. Margaret Court has twenty four. I think the big one to pass was was Steffi because that was all in the open era. Right. But now that she's there, why not? It, Serena went to Australia and lost in Auckland in the second round to Madison Brangle in a match where she made eighty eight unforced errors. In, in a most best of people, three match, that's yeah, that's not easily done. Most people can't clean that up in right. eleven days. And win the Australian Open two and a half weeks later, not losing a set. But if Serena has that ability to turn it on so quickly, I think she's really just going to focus on the majors for hopefully the next year, two, possibly three. You you commit that many unforced errors. Bear in mind, it takes takes 24 points to win a set. So when you have 88 unforced errors, it's an astronomical time. Not, not only did she clean up her game, but the fact that there was no residual confidence dent. That's right. I mean, you think there'd be scar tissue for months after a match like that? And Absolutely. Just, just snap of the fingers see. and forgets that match completely and is able to turn it around. So most people wouldn't be able to turn their game around that quickly, but the mentality of it. And you know, so 
I think there's so little talked about the mentality in the game. Oftentimes we talk about the X's and the O's and the forehands and the backhands. What I'm always fascinated about in matches is these mental swings that you see, the ebbs and the flows. And I'm just going to bring up a match that I saw yesterday with Jack Sock and Grigor Dimitrov. That was a match that I am now, I am just such a big Jack Sock fan. Career win. That was a career win win for him. And tennis-wise, fabulous. The the tennis was such high quality, but there were so many ebbs and flows late stages of that third set where Jack could have disappeared mentally because Grigor was playing well and he just wouldn't let up. But Jack hung in there, and I think that's going to be a change Jack Sock now that he could, got through the finish line after having three match points, not converting, and finally winning right. 9-7 the third three, set and, and So he's down three match points, and two of them were just good first serves. That's great. But the third one, when he hit that, lined an inside-out forehand. Absolutely. I mean, he hit the line and without fear, and he believes in himself. Excuse me, he only saved, I think, one match point. You're right, he saved. Uh, he, he got it on his fourth match right, point. Right, right. All right, how's this for closing on a positive note? How was your first podcast, Tracy Austin? It was enjoyable. I'd love to do it anytime. Deal. These are fun, right? <laughs> fun. All right, that's great. Thanks. Absolutely. All right, that does it for this week's Tennis Channel slash Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast. Very nice conversation with our friend Tracy Austin. I think it's clear why she is so well-liked within tight tennis circles and within the broader tennis community. Always fun to catch up with her. We've been doing a morning show on Tennis Channel but haven't had a long conversation like this. Her first podcast, I would say it was a winning performance in her debut I'm on vacation next week. I'm going to be out of pocket. Andrea Petkovic has kindly uh, volunteered to step in and help with mailbag duties. There won't be a podcast, but we'll have one two weeks from now when the Miami Open will be reaching its finishing stages. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I'm John Wertheim. The guest was Tracy Austin. Our producer, as always, is Jamie Lasanti. We'll talk to you in two weeks. Enjoy the tennis this March, everyone. We'll